And as you are being seated, turn with me to the letter to the Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I had originally thought that we should look at verses 16 through 22, but we're going to actually look at verses 15 through 22. So 15 through 22. And as we read these verses, we're going to be considering a holy heritage. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Give attention to God's holy word. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept... To all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you in your wisdom and grace and power. You have sealed your word with the blood of Christ. We pray now that in the name of Christ and in accordance with your word, you would pour out the Spirit upon our time of worship and upon this time of preaching that we might see and hear the glory of and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, some of the shows that y'all are probably interested in, maybe along with my family, you like to watch some of the old period dramas from uh, uh, Jane Austen and, and that sort of era of literature. And what you find in a lot of those shows and what is often very interesting to us because it's very foreign to our experience in America, is that the stories often take place around a house. And that house is uh, uh, an inheritance that's been passed on down through the generations. Downton Abbey is a great illustration of this. The story is about the house and how the family members have inherited this and they want to preserve it to pass it on to another generation. You know, throughout most of history, when an inheritance was being passed on, it involved a house that was being given to the sons or the heirs of the family. And likewise, in the gospel, to his own sons, the Lord God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has promised you a great inheritance. You have a great heritage that is waiting for you that you will inherit based on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alludes to this 
He does more than allude to it. He's explicit in John 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house are many mansions that are being prepared for God's people in heaven. And so you have a great heritage that is awaiting you. Not one mansion for all of us, but one mansion for each and every one of you. But just like physical houses, our spiritual house requires a key to get in. Imagine what it would be like if you were the heir of some British family and they, um, they gave to you through the rights of inheritance possession of Windsor Palace or some massive mansion in England. And imagine the excitement you would find at learning about this and traveling to take possession of your inheritance and you get to the door and find out you don't have the key. It's standing right there, but you can't go in because you don't have the key. Likewise, for our inheritance, there is a key that is required to enter that inheritance. The Lord God has promised to give us this inheritance, and He has also promised to give us the key that is required to open the door. And specifically, what we're going to learn in this passage is that the inheritance of union with the Father, dwelling in the Father's house, is secured by the death of Christ, which guarantees for all those that are called by the gospel personal holiness wrought by the Holy Spirit. You see, the inheritance is union with the Father in glory forever. But the key to entering into that inheritance is personal holiness. That the testament of the Lord Jesus Christ guarantees to all of those who have been called by the gospel. I'll read this one more time. I know it's a bit wordy. The inheritance of union with the Father is secured by the death of Christ, which guarantees for all those called by the gospel personal holiness wrought by the Spirit. In this passage, we're going to see three things. Inheritance, death, and holiness. Verse 15 is the inheritance. Verses 16 and 17 is death. And verses 18 through 22 is holiness. Inheritance, death, and holiness. And so beginning in verse 15, we consider firstly our eternal inheritance. Notice, especially at the end of verse 15, this this passage along with many other passages in the book of Hebrews is sometimes hard to break it up because it's so tightly woven, it's hard to pick one spot to break it apart. Uh, At the end of verse 15, you notice that he says, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This eternal inheritance is the reward of the gospel. 
The, the thing that the author is speaking about here is the whole point of believing in the gospel. This inheritance is what we were made for. This inheritance is what Christ died for. And this is where everything is moving towards that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ may obtain this eternal inheritance. This inheritance is also a benefit that we enjoy partly in this life and only fully in the next life. Think if you were the heir of a grand estate. If your grandfather owned this house, you would probably have some privileges to go hunting on his property, to go to his parlor, to spend a weekend at grandpa's house. You partially enjoy the benefit before you fully inherit it. But when grandpa dies, then you enjoy the benefit fully. It's likewise with the inheritance of the gospel. We enjoy part of it now. We have experiences of what this inheritance is in our life now. But the full enjoyment comes later. The full enjoyment is in the next life. And quite simply, this inheritance, as I mentioned, is union with the Father. Now, let me define my terms a little bit, because that might be a, a term that some are not very familiar with. When we speak about union in the gospel, we are speaking about the soul being reunited with God the Creator. You see, Adam was made in the garden in perfect union with God. He had union, fellowship, he had access to God's presence. He had the Holy Spirit dwelling in his heart. Adam was in union with God. But after the fall, man was kicked out of the garden. That was not only a physical separation, there was also a spiritual separation. So that now mankind, before the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, are wandering like lost sheep without a shepherd. They are not united with God through Christ. So union with the Father means our fellowship with Him, our access to Him, our spiritual oneness with Almighty God. This doesn't mean we become gods. This doesn't mean we become equal with the Father. But this means, in a very mysterious way, just as a husband and a wife become one flesh, so also Christ and His church become one mystical body. This is the reward of the gospel. This is the thing Christ has promised to us and that Christ guarantees to you. Consider some scriptures. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6. David is praying. And in the midst of his prayers, he says this, O Lord, you are the portion of my cup. Uh, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Likewise, in Psalm 73, 26. Psalm 73, 26. Seventy-three twenty-six. The uh, this is a very important psalm for this truth. You remember that the psalmist is complaining about the prosperity of the wicked. Essentially, he's saying the wicked are inheriting mansions, 
The wicked have fields. The wicked have wealth. They have children. They're inheriting all of these rewards. What's the point of me being holy? What's the point of me humbling myself and chastising myself? And then he remembers, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God himself is my inheritance. Several other passages that could be looked at. Uh, Psalm 119.57, John 14.28, Romans 8.16-17, through 17, Paul connects our union with Christ with becoming heirs along with Christ. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, the same idea. Union with Christ by the Spirit makes us sons of God. If we are sons of God, then we are co-heirs with Christ. Now this is very important to understand, because now we're going to go to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. As our mediator, everything Christ won, everything that Christ enjoys, everything that Christ is, is yours. And so Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, look at what the author says. Remember, you are a joint heir with Christ. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, pay attention, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the inheritance. Sitting down at God's right hand as his adopted sons and daughters, enjoying his glory forever. That's what the gospel promises to you. That's the inheritance that is an internal inheritance. Turn to Psalm 84.3. Because when the gospel calls us, remember Hebrews 9.15, it says, all those who are called by the gospel... When the gospel calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it also puts this desire in our hearts. Psalm 84, 3. The regenerate heart that has been called by the gospel desires this. Sometimes with a weak faith, sometimes with a strong faith, but always with a sincere desire. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we desire rather to depart and be with the Lord. The, the one thing that we want is to be with Him. The psalmist writes in 84.3. Yeah, Psalm 84.3. Uh, starting in, uh, sorry, verse 2. I, I wrote that down wrong. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. All those who've been called by the gospel have this desire in their hearts, to be present with the Lord, come what may. Other passages, again, that you could look at, Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, 
As the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul longs after thee. And again in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8, Paul writes about this desire. That even though our outward man is perishing day by day, our inner man is renewed because we walk by faith, desiring to be with Christ. That's the desire of a heart that's been called by the gospel. Theologically, we call this glorification. You've heard that word before, I trust. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, those whom he loved, he foreordained. And those whom he predestined, he called, justified, and glorified. So what we're describing is union with the Father in all eternity. We will be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what glorification is. And that's what the gospel holds out to us. There are many false gospels in the world. And you can tell that they're false because they put out a false hope. They give you a false perspective on what the gospel promises to you. The prosperity gospel, that's a, that's a low-hanging fruit. Obviously, the prosperity gospel is false because it holds out hope of wealth in this life. The scriptures nowhere promise that God's people will be wealthy. In fact, there's good evidence that you'll probably be poor compared to the rest of the world if you believe in the gospel. There's also the psychological gospel, what I'm calling the psychological gospel. This gospel would be a gospel that promises in this life that you will have psychological peace of mind all the time. You may never have peace of mind as a Christian in this life. Read Psalm 88. The psalmist writes and says, I have been crying and weeping to the Lord day and night, and I'm not getting any answers. And yet that's a regenerate heart because it's desiring the Lord. We need to be especially careful of the psychological gospel because there is, there is much false teaching in the world today that says that if, if something gives an offense, you have a right to be offended by it. Or that if your internal peace of mind is disturbed in some way, then they've committed a sin against you. This is a very subtle tactic of the world that we live in, and we need to be on guard against it. The gospel does not promise you a peaceful, pleasant life in this world, either from prosperity or from psychology. There's also the triumphalist gospel. This would be a gospel that promises that the church will be victorious over the institutions in this life. The Lord nowhere promises that to his people. That's not the hope of the gospel. But be reminded, child of God, it doesn't matter what you're going through in this life. God has promised you a great inheritance. God has promised you glory with himself forever. Amen. The angels don't even inherit this. Did you know that? The angels don't share in this glory. Because Christ took on human nature. And that human nature is glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You also, by union with Him, will be glorified with Christ in the same way He was glorified. Angels have no part of this because they're not heirs as you and I are heirs. God has promised you a great inheritance reserved in heaven for you where thieves do not break in and steal. 
where moth and rust do not destroy, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters. And that's the inheritance that Christ seals to us by his death. Look back in Hebrews chapter 9 now. This death of Christ guarantees this inheritance to those who believe in him. Look at what it says in verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. You need to keep something in mind here. This is often a very complicated section because it's dealing with the death of Christ, and we often think of the death of Christ only in terms of a covenant. Well, a covenant is a religious bond between God and his people, it has promises and it has duties. And the covenant is sealed or ratified by the blood of a sacrifice. God enters into a covenant with his people. He makes promises. They make vows. And then the sacrifice is offered to seal the bargain, so to speak. The death of Christ is a sacrifice. But the death of Christ is also the death of one who has made a last will and testament. And that's how the author's considering the death here. You see, the death of Christ not only is a religious sacrifice in the context of the covenant, but the death of Christ is also the death of one who has given you a last will and testament. And so because he has died, that will and testament is now in force. That's essentially what the author is saying here. Now he says that it is in force, verse 17, a testament is in force after men are dead. This word in Greek means fixed, secure, certain. It's a word that's often used for foundations that you build things on. This word means it's something that you can build upon. It's something that you can rely upon. It is fixed, certain, and in force. The testament of the inheritance is secured by the death of Christ, the testator. The Westminster Confession says this in paragraph, uh, chapter 7, paragraph 4. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the eternal inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. And so... The death of Christ secures the promises of the gospel. This is very essential to understand, brothers and sisters, especially when we get to the topic of holiness. I think many of us shortchange the death of Christ. Many of us look at the death of Christ alone, or we, we look at it as, well, that's why God forgives me, because Jesus died. Amen and amen. That is why God forgives you. But we stop there. We think that God forgives me because Jesus died and then God will receive me into heaven if I'm good enough. If I'm holy enough. 
if I pray well enough, if I read my Bible long enough, if I do what I need to do, then I'll make it to my eternal home. But you see, brothers and sisters, it is not your works that guarantees you a place in heaven. It is the death of Christ that guarantees you a place in heaven. We have to see here why the cross of Christ is the central message of the gospel. Paul says at the end of Galatians, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord. Paul says in the Corinthian letters, I came to you preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See why all the churches that neglect the cross of Christ, all churches that do not preach Jesus the Savior crucified, are preventing sinners from entering heaven. Listen to what Christ says in Luke 11.52. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You have not entered in yourselves, and them that were entering, you hindered. When Christ calls them lawyers, he's speaking about men who are conversant with the law of God. He's speaking about men who know the law of God inside and out, so they think. And he's speaking about men that because they know the law of God, they think that salvation is found in keeping the law of God outwardly. Christ will say at another place to the Pharisees, you bind heavy burdens on men's consciences and you don't lift a finger to help them. And Christ says, woe unto you lawyers, woe unto you legalists, woe unto you who think that your holiness consists in outward obedience to the law of God only. Woe unto you who think that by your efforts you can earn heaven. That's what Christ is speaking about. And there are many, many in the church laboring under the false doctrine of external obedience. There are many who are laboring without the key to the inheritance. Personal holiness is required. And we're going to get to what that means in a second. But personal holiness doesn't mean an outwardly obedient life. Personal holiness doesn't mean being holier than your brother. It doesn't mean being holier than your neighbor. That is not what personal holiness is. In fact, in one of the prophets, the Lord is rebuking Israel, and he says, Woe unto you who thinks you're holier than your brother. It is like smoke in my nostrils. It is offensive when we think that our holiness is an occasion for pride. It is not outward conformity to the law that secures your place in heaven. It is the death of Christ alone and amen. And so his, his death secures our inheritance. But in order to enter into this inheritance, we have to be personally holy. And that's what we look at next in verses 18 through 22. The the author moves on in verse 18. Notice there's a transition. He says, even the first covenant was, uh, what does he say, dedicated, was not dedicated without blood. And so in the first covenant, Moses receives the word of God. He brings the promises to the people. And then the animal is slain. And the the book of the covenant, as he's going to describe, the people and the, the ministry of the tabernacle are all sprinkled with blood. And then as Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Now on the one hand, this is referring to a sacrificial death. 
But the way the author is using it, he's saying it also serves as a, the death of the last testator. It's, it's a last will and testament as well. Notice then at the end of this section, he, he sprinkled the people, the book, the tabernacle, and the vessels of ministry. And then in verse 22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. The word here that's translated as purify, your version might say purged. The word translated as purify is katharizo. It's a word that means to cleanse. It's a word that's often used for the cleansing of the leper. Leviticus 14 verse 7 in the Septuagint uses this word. Mark 1, 40 through 42. Uh, one of the best miracles, one of my favorite uh, miracles of Christ is when Christ touches the leper. And he says, I'm willing, be thou cleansed. Same word that we find in Hebrews 9. The word is a term that's used, and it means to make someone holy. Cleansing means that you're made holy. Cleansing doesn't mean that you're sanitary. Cleansing means that you're holy and you're fit for God's service. Notice what Moses sprinkles in this passage. The book, the people, and the tabernacle. Keep those three things in mind. Because these three things are the key to your personal holiness. The book, the people, and the tabernacle. What does holiness mean? Holiness means separation to God's service. Separation to God's service. That's what holiness is. When we believe, we are initially set apart as holy. When we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, symbolized and sealed to us in our baptism, we are initially set apart as holy. As we grow, we are progressively made holier. Holiness is by degrees. Holiness can grow. Now, this is often where some of our gospel gets confused. We often think about righteousness imputed to us. That's a sweet promise of the gospel. That's one of the chief benefits of union with Christ. But you see, righteousness is uh, unchangeable. Righteousness is like a full suit of clothes. It is one whole piece that in its entirety is given to you. And in your justification, you are declared perfectly righteous without change, without defect. That's justification. What we're talking about here is sanctification. Our righteousness in God's sight given to us through the righteousness of Christ never changes. Our holiness, our personal holiness can grow or decline. Holiness is, uh, let me say it this way, righteousness is imputed to you in whole. It's one whole gift. Holiness is infused in principle and it grows by degrees. Now, I need to be careful here with my language and, and clarify some mistakes that have happened in the church throughout history. I use the word that if some of you have some theological training, are gonna, you'll have caught. 
I said that holiness is infused. The reason Roman Catholics are wrong is because Roman Catholics teach that righteousness is infused. And based on that infused righteousness, infused simply means to uh, make it a part of you. If you're cooking, you might do a... um, Oh, I don't know if this... You might do a, uh, a pumpkin cheesecake. To make a pumpkin cheesecake, you have to infuse the cheesecake with pumpkin. And so Roman Catholics teach that righteousness is infused. You are made righteous personally, and that's why God forgives you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that righteousness is given to you And that though you are personally unrighteous, God forgives you because of the righteousness of Christ. That's imputation. Infusion, however, means that it becomes a part of who you are. And when we talk about sanctification, holiness is infused. God does change you and he does make you personally holy. This is what regeneration is. This is what being born again means. It means your heart is transformed And so holiness is infused in principle. And it grows by degrees. The last thing we need to note about our personal holiness, which is the key to the inheritance. It is wrought by the Holy Spirit through the means of grace upon the heart in the context of worship. Your personal holiness is a work of the Holy Spirit through the means of God's appointment, through the means of grace in the context of worship. Now before we get into the details of how you see this in this passage, let me greatly encourage you, brothers and sisters, Everything that you need to be personally holy is promised and guaranteed to you by the death of Christ. The death of Christ is not only why God forgives, but the death of Christ is also why you have hope in sanctification. It is His work in you through the means He has appointed, and He guarantees All of you that have been called by the gospel will be made holy. You will grow in holiness. You will grow more and more in your love of the Father. You will grow more and more of your hope that when Christ returns, we shall see him as he is and we shall be made like him. You remember what John says in 1 John 3? He who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. Personal holiness is an essential element of the gospel. And through the death of Christ, he's guaranteed everything that you need to achieve it. It's wrought by the Holy Spirit through the means of grace upon the heart in the context of worship. Notice the three things that Moses sprinkled. The book, the people, and the tabernacle. The book we can take as representative of the means of grace. It's the book of Scripture, the book of the covenant, the, the, the Word of God, which is the primary means of grace. This Word of God 
is guaranteed and sealed by the blood of Christ. And so the Word's power in your life is not based on your ability to read or think. It's based on the blood of the mediator. The mediator has promised to you, brothers and sisters, he who abides in me and my word abides in him will bear much fruit. There's no caveats. There's no conditions. There's no degrees that are required. There's no languages that are needed to be learned. Let his word abide in you and you will bear much fruit. But notice also, not just the book, the people were sprinkled with the blood. So the book is powerful to transform, and because you are God's covenant people, he has in principle given you the seed of holiness. You have been set apart if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do belong to him. His word is working in your life if the gospel has called you. And then finally, he sprinkles the tabernacle. Now, you know, in Moses' day, the tabernacle was the place of worship. That was the place where Israel gathered to offer their sacrifices and praises to God. And so you have the means of grace in the book, the people themselves, and the place of worship. This is where sanctification happens. Now, we need to fill out what we mean by worship. Because this is often, I think, misunderstood. Worship is of three kinds. Private, family, and public. And so what I'm saying to you, and what I believe the author is saying here, at least by implication and application, if you want to grow in your personal holiness, and you need to grow in your personal holiness... It happens in the prayer closet. It happens on your face before the Lord, diligently using the means of grace, claiming the promises of Christ and claiming the blood of Christ and claiming the promise of the Holy Spirit to say, God, I want to be with you, but I'm not worthy of you. Make me worthy. That's where sanctification happens. That's where the heart is transformed. And if your heart is transformed in that way, you'll outwardly live according to the law. You'll outwardly keep God's commandments. This is Paul's point in Galatians 5. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. If you're living a life in the Spirit, outward conformity to God's law will be second nature. Notice, this has to be a change of heart. This is why holiness is not outward conformity to God's law. It is a personal holiness that's required. You and I are body and soul individuals. We have an outward life, but we also have an inner heart. As the scriptures testify everywhere, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Out of, out of the heart proceed adulteries, blasphemies, etc., etc. These things defile a man. It is out of the heart that unholiness arises. Matthew 5.8, one of the Beatitudes, Christ says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
you see a perfect summary of what I think this passage is teaching. Personal holiness is the key to beholding God's glory. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 John 2, 15-17, we get a better picture of what an unholy heart looks like. 1 John 2, 15-17, John writes in this passage, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's unholiness. That's uncleanness. That's the filthiness of the Gentiles that Paul and the apostles constantly speak about. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There is no neutral ground when it comes to holiness. Either we are growing in holiness or we're not. You you cannot serve God and the world. You cannot love God and love the things of the world at the same time. This is the heart of holiness. Look what else John tells us. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. What does the lust of the flesh mean? Well, the lust of the flesh means indulging the body. The lust of the flesh means that bodily desires become the the driving motivation behind what we do. Paul, uh, turn to Ephesians 4, where Paul says this, but he says it in other places as well. Actually, not this passage. 1 Thessalonians. Forgive me. I think 1 Thessalonians is a better one. 1 Thessalonians 4. It's more succinct when he speaks about the Gentiles and the lust of the flesh. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, that means body. You should possess your own body in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice how he describes the Gentiles. They're like animals. Animals don't know God. Animals are creatures that live by raw bodily instinct. That's what motivates animals to do what they do. And he's saying those that do not know God live like animals. All of their bodily desires motivate them, and all of their bodily desires are what they indulge in. This is uncleanness, brothers and sisters. This is part of what it means to be unholy, to indulge the lust of the flesh. Now here we have one of the chief dangers of our age. One of the chief dangers of our age is that we live in a day of sexual immorality. That's easy enough to prove. But you need to understand why our day is so dangerous. Because they teach a plausible lie. They teach that if it feels good, it must be 
good. They teach that it's okay for you to get personal satisfaction. This is the heart of unholiness, brothers and sisters. Because remember, holiness is set apart for God's service. Holiness means being dedicated to God the Father because we love God the Father. And this is the heart of what Paul the Apostle writes when he talks about holiness, especially when it comes to the deeds of the body. Let me, let me just put it this way. Time is going to get away from us if I spend more on this. But it's such a danger in our day. Your body was not given to you for your pleasure. Your body was not given to you for your own self-gratification. Your body was given to you for God's pleasure. Even as Paul the Apostle writes, you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That is holiness, brothers and sisters. And so John says, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These things in the heart make us unholy. Remember, the lust of the eyes is just the opposite of the life of faith. It's desiring to see rather than to believe. And then the pride of life would be setting up our own experiences or our own selves as the ultimate arbiter of truth. All of these things are contrary to the love of God. Finally, one last thing in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, the author tells us, as we are to follow the example of Christ and as we are to receive the chastening of our Heavenly Father as true sons, we are to receive this chastening in verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, to those who have grown in personal holiness. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If we don't have this personal holiness, we will not see God. We will not enter into this eternal inheritance. But because of the death of Christ, because of the promises He's made to us in the gospel, that if you believe in Him, all of your sins will be forgiven and He will give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to believe. That last will and testament has been guaranteed by the death of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, just as you began walking in the Lord Jesus by trusting in Him, continue walking in the Lord Jesus by trusting in Him, and trust in Him all the way to glory, and God will bring you there as you grow in your personal holiness. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the promises in your word. And we thank you for the great power of Christ that is available to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would extend your hand into our lives and into this congregation. 
that we might grow in our holiness, having beheld your love in the face of the Lord Jesus. We pray that as you show us more of his glory, you would transform us into the same image of glory so that we might truly say with the Apostle Paul, better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. O Lord, there is none on earth that we desire besides you. Our heart and our flesh cry out for the living God. Satisfy our desire, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.